We're in the middle of a series. This is part four, when you only have time for one verse. And I find this a fascinating text. Sometimes you stare at something that's so obvious, and you don't see it for quite a while. That was my experience with this verse. It's one verse. I want to talk to you about the two different ways God brings victory over trouble. The two different ways God brings victory over trouble. The verse... Is that in your notes, Psalm 46.1? Let's read it out loud, nice and loud in unison. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. The psalm has been kind of nicknamed Luther's psalm. For the simple reason, this was the inspiration for that great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It came from thinking about this verse that we're looking at tonight. It'd be hard to count the thousands of Christians all over the world who have received comfort in the storms of life from Luther's famous words, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. And there's something in that phrase we can identify with, the flood of mortal ills prevailing. The reason that song, let's face it, long after, and I'm not knocking any of them, but long after everything Hillsong ever wrote is died and buried in the grave, Christians are still going to be singing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. The reason it's had such a long and fruitful ministry in the church is that Luther captured not just the truth of this psalm, but the intent of the Holy Spirit in having these truths made the theme of the church's worship. If you look at the very beginning of that psalm, it's worded differently depending on what translation you have, but in all of them, at the beginning of the psalm, before the first verse, you have this line, for the worship leader, to the choir director. And you can see how the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, intended the worship of God's people to center around his care, his protection in the midst of their times of trouble because there were going to be times of trouble. The people of God were to corporately, collectively celebrate the reliability of God. And just on the side, just on the side, notice how much When you see that at the beginning of this psalm, notice how much God cared about the content of the songs the people of God were singing. He still does care a great deal about it. It's an important part of our worship. Amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. That's how troubles come. Luther knew, they executed Luther, by the way, Luther knew that troubles don't come one at a time. That's the flood part. The second trial doesn't wait until you've caught your breath from the first. I mean, life sometimes comes in this overwhelming. You see these floods on the news, that tsunami-like flood. And you do. You go through seasons that 
They're actually hard to understand, hard to explain. Life can get hard so quickly. There's this vivid pictorial language right in this psalm that captures the nature of the way difficulties can come to all of us. I was looking at 46, 2, and 3. Therefore, we will not fear, though, look at this, the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. It's more than beautiful poetry. The psalmist knows what he's talking about. You see, mountains usually stay put. That's the great thing about mountains. Mountains don't typically just crumble and fly into the sea. You you can count on mountains. Mountains are just, they're big, solid, strong, reliable. That's what a mountain is. And there's nothing, nothing that devastates our personal world more than the shaking up of things that seem so permanent, seem so stable, the things you couldn't imagine ever changing, you just, you just depended on. You get used to some things as reliable, certain things you can bank on. You count on certain things staying in place. And then, then, and then, you lose your job. Or that rock-solid person in your life passes away. Or, for reasons you can't explain at the time, you betray some of your most cherished convictions. What was I thinking? How could I do that? Supports are gone. The mountains really crashed. And it's easy for even positive, buoyant Christians to become disillusioned, doubtful, discouraged. Where's, where, where is God in the middle of this? Now, that's where we come to this psalm. And it has some good news, though you have to know how to read it. It has very good news. It tells us, tells me, Don. God has not deserted you. No matter how you feel, the psalmist says, verse 1, he's present. In fact, it says he's very present. First verse. He's not far away. He's not out of touch. He's not useless when he's most needed. He's not inactive when we want him to be active. He's not an absent help. An absent help is no good at all. He's a present help. He's a very present help. And all of that brings us to the teaching tonight. How? How does God help us? How does he want to help us in our time of deepest trouble, deepest failure? Because because if I don't know how the help comes, I'm likely to conclude, quite falsely, that he's no help at all. I mean, it's nice. I go to church. I sing the songs. I, you know... It's pleasant, but I look at, look at my life. 
If we don't know how the help comes, I can easily conclude that God isn't there, and that would be a great tragedy to the honor and glory of God. So the key to all of that is our text for tonight. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And the beauty of those simple words is this, and it took me a long time to see it. They tell us how God wants to be a help. It tells us the kind of help I should look for in two very different kinds of situations. Here it is. Sometimes God wants to be my refuge, and sometimes God wants to be my strength. That's not a hard outline to remember, is it? Sometimes God wants to be your refuge. Sometimes God wants to be your strength. And if we ever get those two situations reversed, the results are disastrous. So point number one. There are times when God promises to be my refuge. I flee to him for refuge. So sometimes safety isn't to be found in fighting. Sometimes safety is to be found in flight. It comes by fleeing, not by fighting. That's what a refuge is for. People escape. They run to a refuge. In the Old Testament, you know this. There were cities of refuge where a person who was either falsely accused or committed some crime by accident without any ill intent He could flee to a city of refuge to escape an angry family or a mob that was out for blood. He would go to a city of refuge, safe in the city of refuge. That's the picture the psalmist has in mind. That's the picture that the Spirit said, put this in the worship of the church. Put this in the worship of the people of God. Read it before first verse. There's profound insight here. We can win the battle sometimes not by engaging the enemy, but by fleeing to refuge. The need isn't armor in this situation. There is a place for Ephesians 6, not in this situation. The need isn't armor. The need is refuge. We talk a lot, don't we, about spiritual warfare today, and there is. There is a need to constantly be fighting battles. But it's easy to forget that there are certain battles I wasn't meant to fight. In fact, I will fight many needless spiritual battles if I forget that many conflicts are avoidable simply by fleeing the enemy, finding refuge in the presence and safety of God. Let me give you some examples. Pastor Don, what are you talking about? I want to show you where fleeing is better than fighting. Christians are to flee sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 6.18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So, in this area of temptation that can end in disaster for so many people in today's world, Victory is gained not by fighting. Victory is gained by putting distance between ourselves and any form or temptation of sexual impurity. Flee 
Did you get it? Flee sexual immorality. Run from this attack of the enemy. Pick, pick any television series you want. Look at the things making people laugh. Look at the websites. Listen to the lyric of the songs. Look at how the singers are dressed, and Christians flock to these concerts. We live in a society that's obsessed with sexual expression, sexual experimentations, and Christians buy into stuff like this. And soon, their lives get all gummed up as the thinking expressed in the media around them gums up their walk with Jesus. They will call out to the Lord for help, and deliverance isn't going to come. Because what God wanted was flee sexual immorality. You can't dabble with it and cry out to the Lord for deliverance. Do you get what I'm saying? There are different ways these battles get won. These will be the first people when they mess up, complain that God is far away, inattentive to their cry, and he isn't. They've simply ignored the way he wanted to deliver them. They could have had freedom and blessing and the protection of God on their lives, keeping them pure, but they ignored the kind of provision God wanted to use in their circumstances. They dabbled with something. They didn't flee. It's one example. B, Christians must flee idolatry. 1 Corinthians 10, 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. Just run. I suppose there's a tendency, isn't there, to think of idolatry as kind of a dated sin. Smoke-filled temples, faraway lands, idols. But idolatry is really an issue of your heart's devotion. Idolatry has to do with what claims first place in my attention, my interest, my affections, and we, we, we all live, we all live perilously close to the sin of idolatry. That's why Paul says, Paul says there's really only one way to deal with it. Don, you have to get up tomorrow morning and say, today, today, I have to flee idolatry. I have to flee it. My greatest chance for purity in this area is found not by engaging an inner battle, but by fleeing and not feeding idolatry. Paul exposes the foolishness. My beloved, he's talking to believers, therefore my beloved, flee idolatry. He exposes the foolishness of letting my heart wander wherever it would like and then praying that Jesus will be Lord of my life. Paul says, that's not, that's not going to work. You didn't flee. God will be my refuge. Flee idolatry. Flee to his word. See, Christians must, must flee youthful passions. We'll talk about this for a second. Because it applies to the youth, but not just the youth. 2 Timothy 2.22. So, here's the same thing. 
You see a pattern. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. I hope you see, if you're going to get victory over this, the fleeing has to do with fleeing those kinds of youthful passions along with, there's a collective, you're with the others of the same mind. That's why he closes that verse. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Flee youthful passions. Great words, hopeful words for all of us, especially those who are still blessed with youth. People are looking younger and younger to me all the time. Are there anyone else in the room finding that happening? Yeah. Paul writes these words to Timothy. He's very young. But here's the hopeful part. Paul expects great things from Timothy. He's in a church. He's in a pretty good-sized church, and people are not really ready to listen to this young man. And Paul says, Timothy, just because you're young doesn't mean you have to be immature. You can shine. I love looking out on a Sunday night like this, and I just see a whole bunch of people who are a lot younger than I am. Timothy, God can do great things through you, but you have to flee youthful lusts. You you can't have it both ways. You can't be used by God and entertain youthful lusts. You have to flee them. Paul calls them youthful lusts because, well, they're particularly dominant in earlier years, and this is the time to flee them. If you're here tonight and you're under 40, flee desires before they turn into habits of life. This is the place to set a good course. Paul tells us youth is the time to learn to say no to a lot of things, to flee a lot of things. Don't park your heart right on the edge of worldliness. Flee youthful lusts. Let God be your refuge. Do it while you're young. Keep doing it for your whole life. Okay, there's just some examples, A, B, C, where God wants to bring deliverance not by an entangled battle with the world inch by inch, but by a quick, abrupt refusal, our separation, putting distance. Do whatever it takes to shun involvement. Jesus, cut off the hand. That's what it takes. Pluck out the eye, if that's what it takes. Separate yourself from the impulses that are form habits. Flee, flee. The solution is fleeing. It's not negotiating. It's not compromising. Some evils and sins dry up only through neglect and distance. This is God's plan for giving you refuge. Oh, Don, it's a dreadful mistake to overestimate your strength. And it's a greater mistake to carelessly presume on 
God's protection and answered prayer, protection from evil that he told me to flee in the first place. Do you see the, do you see the contradiction in that? Flee, don't negotiate. There, that's the first way God wants to bring victory in all sorts of areas of my life. But two, there are times when God promises to be our strength. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in time of evil. Strength. We should be grateful for the second provision. Here's why. Everyone in this room knows there are certain things you can't run away from. You can run away from sexual sins. You can't run away from disease. You can't run away from bereavement. You can't always run away from sorrow. You don't go looking for those things. They seek us all out in different ways. The psalmist has good news. It's not just a matter, what do you, what do, you do when the Mountains fall away into the sea. The things that were immovable that you counted on. You just tell people, well, hang in there. Keep a stiff upper lip. Psalmist has better news. When you you can't run away, you can find strength. There is strength to fight the battles you can't flee. I was looking at Paul's words in 2 Timothy 4, 6 to 8. Are those in your notes? Let's read them together, okay? For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, for the time of my departure has come. I have fought a good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Those verses have a different feel than the flee verses. They aren't about fleeing. They're about fighting. You can can just feel the conflict in the verbs. Keep the faith. There are trials that come, and what they are, more than anything else, they are a war against your faith. They want to turn courage into fear, confidence into doubt. And the fight is to, Paul says, finish the course. Finishing is harder than starting. Look toward the end of all things. Those who have loved his appearing, Paul says. Look to the end of all things. Paul looked for the day of his appearing. All the enemies will be defeated. The things you can't flee, the things that wear against the soul, You can't make them all disappear. The fight is to hold on to the faith. At the end, you win. You can just see the divine strategy in the words of the psalmist. Some dangers you can't flee. Others you have to fight. You have to make that practical. Like, it's it's not a slogan, fight of faith. Faith isn't automatic. For any of us. Not for any of us. Not until we see Jesus face to face. Nobody's going to keep your life rooted in the word for you. You have to fight for time every day. 
Nobody's going to win the battle with bitterness for you. I have, in my years of pastoring here, talked to people, some still here, some have left the church, that were bitter and angry with someone and carried it for years, for years. And you can see it eating them up. No one's going to make that. No one's going to fight that for them. They have to make a choice. Not easy, especially if you've been hurt or wronged. What are you going to do? You're going to carry that the rest of your life? You have to fight that. Nobody's going to keep you going to church regularly when there's all sorts of other things to do. You'll have to fight that good fight of faith against your whims and moods and what's on TV. You're going to fight. God will give you strength, but he's not going to fight for you. There's hope in his word, but you have to fight for the word. There's strength with God's people, but you have to fight to keep that battle. Sometimes he's our refuge. Flee. Youthful lusts, immorality, idolatry. Flee. Sometimes you fight. There are two different ways God wants to bring victory over trouble. It's not always going to come the same way. Sometimes we win by fleeing. Sometimes we win by fighting for faith. Don't allow yourself to not think these things through. Don't just say, oh, I'm just relying on the Lord. You, you, know the word with understanding. How, how is this battle going to be won? Is this a fleeing situation or is this a fighting situation? God is. He is. Not just a present help. He's a very present in time of trouble, but you need to know how he works, and you need to line up your mind and your actions with the promise and with the command of God's word. There's victory in fleeing for refuge, and there's victory in fighting for faith. And the wisdom is knowing which is which. Let's pray.